I've uh, I'm debated whether or not to say this this morning, but uh, in the end, I'm, I think I'm going to, and maybe you leave five minutes later, but I think it's worth saying. Uh, you know, as we go through uh, the book of Acts, uh, there's something that kind of consistently comes up, but it's never really the point of the story. Uh, it's always kind of the context of the point, like it, it prompts something. And essentially, that's what happens in our text this morning. Uh, it's, you know, it's there, but it's not really the point of, uh, I think, why Luke is sharing what he shares. And at the same time, uh, that, that context, I think, flies in the front of uh, probably uh, something we've experienced, or maybe I should say, failed to experience. Uh, and that is that we are very much in the midst of a spiritual battle that there are demonic forces arrayed against uh, Christ, against the church of Christ, uh, that maybe in our uh, frame of reference are rarely, if ever, seen. And I think, uh, I suspect that there's a reason that most of us would say we don't have much experience or haven't really seen that. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but I guess what prompts me uh, wanting to say this to you this morning is I think uh, it's easy to walk through the book of Acts uh, and kind of think, well, Luke's truthfully relating, you know, what people supposed was happening, but, uh, you know, I've never seen anything like that. I'm kind of skeptical that that sort of thing actually happens, and so not saying it's wrong, but I don't really know that I would have explained the situation in exactly the same way. And uh, in this text this morning, I'm very much going to assume that exactly what Luke is saying is happening or implies is happening actually happened, that uh, there are very real demonic forces arrayed against the people of God and that at times, and as it suits their ends, and God allows them, that those demonic forces truly display power, power that would shock people to witness. And uh, I would suggest to you, if, if as we go through Acts, uh, some of what Luke says about uh, the demonic opposition to the church or demonic oppression of people seems kind of otherworldly and almost unreal to you that uh, while Scripture never really, I think, gives a direct explanation as to why maybe most of us would say, well, I've never really seen anything like that, and it seems to be so prominent in the book of Acts is, uh, in my mind, uh, probably... Uh, a result of the fact that our culture is very, very different than their culture. Uh, and I think I would add to that uh, my assumption that uh, Satan is not principled. Satan, is, Satan and the demons are absolutely pragmatists who will do anything they need to do in order to accomplish their goal, and that is to keep people from the true worship of the Lord. And so in a culture like their culture, where everyone is beginning with the assumption that there is very much a spiritual world and there are spiritual powers that are beyond our capacity to fully understand, 
Right? The best thing that, if, uh, that I could do if I were a demon uh, intent on people, keeping people from worshiping, truly worshiping the Lord would be to manifest my power in every way imaginable so that I became the object of those people's worship. However, we live in a culture where that assumption is not commonly held. In fact, probably far and away for the last hundred, few hundred years in the Western world, the assumption most broadly held is there probably isn't a spiritual realm. And so if I were a demon uh, intent on keeping people from worshiping the Lord, the last thing that I would do would be to visibly manifest my power and convince people who thought that there was no spiritual realm that there is, in fact, a spiritual realm. And I, I suggest that uh, to you this morning, I think, for two reasons. Number one uh, is I don't want there to be uh, an assumption I'm making that what Luke says is actually happening and an assumption you're making that, like, I've never experienced anything like that and that probably doesn't actually happen, uh, right? That kind of disconnection is not helpful. But I think also uh, generally... Uh, uh, pastoral concern that we have been in a very for a very long time uh, in a place as a culture where maybe the broad assumption was that there wasn't really a spiritual realm, and I have the vague sense that uh, some of us uh, might live through a cultural shift, uh, especially as. Uh, paganism and Satanism become uh, more popular, that uh, that won't always be the case. That, uh, as I said, I, I think that uh, demons are ultimately pragmatists. And if, uh, if there is a cultural shift to the point that uh, those things become uh, more commonly held as Satanism, paganism, animism, that at that point, I would think that everything that uh, a demon would want to be accomplished would be better accomplished by fully manifesting their power in every way imaginable, in ways that uh, maybe we've never witnessed, but we've heard missionaries talk about uh, happening in other parts of the world. And so I want to read through the text this morning, but I, I want to be clear that as we read this text, I think that what Luke is relating to us is happening absolutely happened, and we should read it as such. Uh, so this morning, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Right? So if you remember the, the context, Philip has began proclaiming Christ in Samaria, uh, and there's an initially positive response among the Samaritans. Uh, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and came and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying, of, laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither lot, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful to you, God, that uh, we may sit together uh, under your word. Lord, we pray that you would further enlighten our hearts. Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, open our eyes and allow us, uh, God, to see clearly uh, the nature of the battle that we're in, allow us to uh, see our own hearts clearly, and give us uh, the humility we need to ask and answer uh, difficult questions and uh, about, about our own hearts, about uh, the reality of the world that we're living in, and allow us uh, firm faith in that vision that God, d despite any uh, threat to your people, to your church, and that you are the one who triumphs, and you will protect your church, and give us confidence and hope in, uh, in the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that uh, his victory may become increasingly evident in our hearts, even as it's increasingly evident in this world. And we ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. So uh, we're introduced to a man named Simon. Uh, depending on what Bible you're using, it probably says something like Simon the Magician or Simon Magnus. This guy has been known through church history for the most part as Simon Magnus, uh, which means Simon the Great. And uh, Simon is introduced to us as a practicer of magic. Uh, and this is uh, not, not magic in the Las Vegas sense, right? Like not sleight of hand, uh, but the magic here is the Deuteronomy 18 sort of magic, like dark magic. Uh, he's a sorcerer. Uh, 
and Simon is introduced to us as a sorcerer, and not just any sorcerer, but quite the sorcerer. We know uh, from extra biblical records that there was actually quite a, a trade of people. Most of them uh, had a few tricks in their bag, and they would go city to city and uh, display their power, or some of them may have been what we think of as magicians, like sleight-of-hand magicians. They would, uh, you know, collect what pay they could, and maybe because their repertoire was pretty shallow, they'd hit the road again. And actually, we even know that there was a trade where uh, these magicians uh, would sell tricks to each other or sell magical incantations to each other. In fact, We'll see this a little bit later in Acts chapter 19 when Paul references like the value of the magical books that the Ephesians burn, right? That uh, there, is, there is a whole cottage industry built around uh, magic and sorcery. Uh, but Simon is, seems to be a little bit unique in that uh, there doesn't really seem to be any limit to his power. And in fact, his bag of tricks was apparently uh, deep enough that he didn't have to travel. He set up camp uh, in Samaria. Uh, he was very well known amongst the Samaritans. In fact, he had earned a reputation as Simon the Great. Uh, he has uh, a power from God that is great. And uh, probably uh, for most Samaritans, uh, Simon either was uh, a semi-divine person or at least had uh, some divine power. We don't, we don't know exactly what Simon did uh, with his sorcery to convince people that he was uh, semi-divine, but we do know that uh, the Samaritans, being Samaritans, had sort of a, a weird... Uh, frame of reference compared to what we would think of like a Jew probably having. We know that Samaritans expected a, a Messiah. They called him Taeb, but uh, since the Assyrians, uh, Samaritans had sort of a weird mix of pagan occult and Judaism, what we think of as Judaism, and whether some people thought potentially that Simon was the Messiah or not. You know, Luke doesn't uh, tell us, but apparently he had uh, unimaginable power. Uh, in fact, one of the church fathers reports later that uh, after all this happens in Acts chapter 8, Simon takes his show to the road in Rome uh, after this encounter and is eventually honored in Rome as divine. So whatever his power was, uh, probably it was very impressive. His magic prompted the Samaritans to pay attention to him, to consider him great, uh, great in the sense that the Lord is great. And when Philip shows up on the scene, uh, he begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And the crowd who had previously held Simon in such high esteem is amazed by uh, Philip's preaching and Philip's um, miracles to the point that they respond in faith to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
right? Whatever power Simon was displaying, the message of the gospel, ultimately the freedom of the gospel, seems far more compelling to the Samaritans than Simon, so much so that uh, initially, Luke says, even Simon himself believes and then was baptized. He continues on with Philip, and the verb uses here, like he's on Philip's heels all the time. Simon is following Philip around, observing everything that Philip's doing. He's seeing the signs and the miracles. He's amazed by the power that Philip displays. Uh, And uh, when we see that Simon believed and was baptized, of course, uh, Luke wants us to think, if this was our first reading of the text, that this guy is now a Christian. He, was, uh, he believed and he was confirmed in his belief by the church through baptism, right? Philip hears his testimony and recognizes it as the truth that uh, Simon uh, professed faith in the gospel truly, and so he recognizes that in baptism. But the story goes on. Uh, when the apostles hear about everything that's going on in Samaria from Jerusalem, uh, they decide to send the delegation, Peter and John, to check out what is happening, right? And we said last week that even as Jesus told them that the gospel would progress from Jerusalem to, Ju- uh, to Judea to Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth, I think we have to remember uh, as we consider this text that this is still probably an utter paradigm shift for the Jews to think that somehow the Samaritans could be included, right? They, they expect it, but could it really happen? And so uh, they send this delegation uh, from the Jerusalem church, probably to encourage what's happening in Samaria, but also to, to verify, like, is this really the Lord moving amongst Samaritans? I mean, they're Samaritans after all. Uh, could would God really do what he's doing in us, in those people over there? And so uh, Peter and John show up. They recognize that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. And so uh, because they were simply baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Luke says, and so they lay their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And I think the expectation here is this is like what the Jews experienced at Pentecost in Jerusalem. There's sort of a second Pentecost, a mini Pentecost in Samaria. And uh, I think probably the reason for the delay at this point, though Luke doesn't explain it explicitly, uh, is uh, evident in the fact that uh, there's a similar delay as the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Uh, I think God in his providence and in his grace, uh, as an act of love for this early church, waits to send the Spirit, uh, not because God, uh, not because we should expect that there's some delay between a person receiving Christ and a person receiving the Spirit, but this is, I think, a special uh, dispensation where the apostle, the Holy Spirit doesn't come until the apostles are there to witness it. Right? So that God can confirm for the apostles, for the Jerusalem church, that yes, this is very much of God. That uh, the Holy Spirit coming on them at this point uh, 
with the Jerusalem or the apostles witnessing on the behalf of the Jerusalem church that they're experiencing exactly the same thing we experience is God's confirmation that the gospel is indeed for all nations, that the Samaritans are a part of the same church that these Jewish believers in Jerusalem are. And as all this is happening, uh, Simon is, uh, comes back into the story. He sees the apostles laying on their hands, and he offers them uh, money. He offers to buy the ability to give the Spirit the way that the apostles have given the Spirit. Which, remember, uh, this, is, uh, this is maybe kind of shocking to us, but for a guy like Simon, this is part of the trade. If he's a sorcerer, uh, he's used to the idea that you can buy and sell uh, tricks, spells, incantations, powers, uh, sleights of hand, whatever, uh, between magicians. That's something all magicians or sorcerers do with each other. And so these other guys have come into town. They display a power that is impressive to him, and he offers to buy the power from them that uh, he wants to be able to do the same thing. And I think at that point, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Simon isn't all that familiar with the Old Testament, uh, right? We, we see this sort of thing play out uh, in the Old Testament, namely, I think, of Second Kings 5 with Gehazi where someone tries to buy the grace of the Lord or attach some monetary price to the grace of the Lord. And it never works out well for someone who does this. Uh, Peter immediately responds with a curse. Uh, and his accusation is that you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Right? So Peter draws an immediate line and says, there is uh, no comparison between your trade in sorcery and what we are doing. We're not like you, but better at it. We serve the Most High. We are utterly different. His powers cannot be bought and sold. The Spirit cannot be directed by man's will. That ultimately the Spirit directs the wills of men. This power is unlike any power that you can imagine and curse you for thinking that it's anything like the power that you've displayed to this point. In fact, he says, uh, with very Old Testament language, you have neither part nor lot in this. And, and part and lot, uh, I'm taken from the division of the land where the Levites get neither part nor lot, Right? The Levites have no partnership or ownership of the land. And so I think Peter is saying to him that you have no partnership in the gospel, you have no ownership of the gospel, you have demonstrated that you are not a believer. Baptism aside, profession of faith aside, you clearly are not a believer for your heart is not right before God. Right? That his baptism... And his profession of faith, while they may have seemed genuine for a moment, were uh, only Simon trying to access some power for himself. Him 
trying to do what he thought he needed to do in order to direct the power of God as he had been directing demonic power. And Peter clearly says that this wickedness must be repented of. Right? And uh, maybe we're uh, getting close to the line of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, and it, that uh, you need to repent so that the Lord will forgive this wickedness in you. We see the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity in you. Right? That uh, there's a, a kind of bitterness in your heart that's producing this idea that somehow you can direct the power of God to serve your ends. And Simon responds uh, with the... Uh, something that I think is probably not truly repentance. And pray for me uh, to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Right? That uh, he recognizes the power behind uh, the apostles, but he's not repenting of what he said. If anything, he's maybe afraid of the consequences of offending the power behind the apostles and offending God most high. Uh, and with that, uh, Simon drops out of the story of Acts. Uh, there's uh, a lot of church tradition that Simon ends up leading a group of heretical semi-Christians, but we honestly don't really know what happens to Simon, as Luke sometimes does, who just sort of a cliffhanger. We don't, we don't know if he ends up believing later on or not, but uh, we leave Simon in a place where we're not really sure what's going on in his heart. Uh, what we are sure of, Luke says, is that the gospel continues to progress amongst the Samaritans. The, with the coming of the Spirit, witnessing the power of God at work in the Samaritans, the apostles return back to Jerusalem, not just to report what they saw in Samaria, but very much participating, preaching the gospel in the villages as they make their way back to Jerusalem. So this is an absolute affirmation of everything that they've seen, that uh, they know that it, it serves God's ends, that the gospel continue to advance among the Samaritans. And I wanted to, uh, wanted to take this text uh, as a chunk today, because I think that Simon's story, Luke, Luke relates Simon's story because it's, uh, in a way, it clarifies something about the gospel uh, that we, we should all uh, appreciate. If there's any part of us that... Uh, that thinks that uh, verbal confession, apart from uh, genuine repentance in the heart, is somehow saving faith, I think this text stands directly in the face of that. Uh, that saving faith is something far more than verbal confession. And in fact, uh, you know, in order to Philip, for Philip to have baptized Simon, right, like it, it wasn't probably the sort of confession that was really unclear. Do they get the gospel or not? Well, I think so. Let's baptize him, right? Everything we know about Philip would indicate uh, if, he does, if he wasn't convinced on hearing Simon's confession, 
that uh, Simon genuinely believed, then he wouldn't have baptized him. Philip displays remarkable courage here in our next text. Uh, I think in seeing the gospel progress, he very much wants to see the gospel progress, but I don't think there's any part of Philip that would knowingly falsely baptize someone he didn't think was confessing genuine faith. So uh, Simon must have had, I think, a convincing confession, but uh, the situation after his confession and baptism demonstrate that a person can confess Christ and even be baptized and still their heart does not belong to God. Uh, and so I would suggest to you that the, the sort of uh, self-serving, cynical, what's in it for me faith that Simon is displaying uh, in this text, uh, Luke is, I think, wanting us to understand is clearly not saving faith. That uh, a person uh, a person could display the sort of faith that might fool everyone into church into falsely baptizing them, uh, but it does not fool God. That in the end, in the very end, God will lay bare every heart, thought or intention of the heart and uh, that, that though at times uh, something that seems to us uh, to be like faith might, uh, might deceive, that in the end uh, the truth will come out. And what, we're see- what truth we're seeing in Simon, I think, is that Christ will not take anyone on their terms. Christ only takes people on his terms. It's his terms or none. And I think for that reason, Luke's uh, communicating the story of Simon uh, ought to prompt uh, serious reflection. I've told you before, uh, these kind of texts uh, kind of terrify me a little bit. like, I definitely don't think that I'm a person without assurance, but uh, man, I, I definitely can't stand up here and tell you that, well, I have a pure heart and I never have any uh, bad thoughts or bad intentions. Like, I am not a perfect person. But uh, I think this text uh, and our willingness to search our own hearts. Uh, more than question our salvation because uh, we have an errant sinful thought that we seek to put to death. I think this text should affirm for us that uh, following Jesus Christ isn't simple outward conformity. Right? That uh, it, it, it shouldn't uh, terrify a person that genuinely sees the fruit of the Spirit in their life at the same time that they struggle with sin, but it should absolutely terrify the person who uh, cultivates a life in such a way that no one around them would ever see them sin, but unchecked in their heart run pride and lust and wrath and hate that they have no concern at all 
about what's going on on the inside where no one can see, and they spend all of their time thinking about what will improve their reputation with the people around them. That Jesus Christ absolutely did not suffer every humiliation and surrender himself to death for a bunch of whitewashed tombs. That God absolutely wants the person's heart. That only those who surrender their hearts to Jesus Christ in faith, in the end, see salvation. That 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 sort of uh, indifference to uh, a heart that does whatever it wants while uh, while there is a, a calculated uh, effort to craft a life that no one would suspect is sinful is absolutely not the work of the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God uh, moves in us to convict us of all sin. Right? It, Simon may have been offering money, uh, and uh, we might think uh, he's crazy for that. Uh, but what is it we're doing if we think that uh, we can, uh, with some effort, buy reputation? If a true fight against sin is not characterizing our lives, if all we're trying to do is enhance our own reputation, and we call that a fight against sin, we should be terrified. And of course, I think... Uh, There's tension in this text where uh, Simon is trying, uh, uh, Simon is uh, very much interested in like what's in it for me. And he tries to buy the grace of God because he perceives some personal gain. Uh, in the power of God, right? And at the same time that I would suggest to you that uh, what's in it for me uh, is not a good characterization of saving faith, uh, I'd say to a person with genuine saving faith, everything is in that for you. Right? Like you stand everything to gain everything in Christ Jesus, uh, but uh, the, the text here is clear that even as the believer stands to gain everything in Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ cannot be bought. Not with money, not with cleaning up your life, not with other people thinking highly of you, that we should not ever confuse any of those things uh, as a commodity that God trades in. That God is only after the heart and he expects the heart. And so, uh, you know, as I think about this text, I, I'm thinking about my own heart, right? Like not uh, do other people see me sin, but what's going on in my heart? Do I see the gospel shaping my affections? Is my heart uh, excited about 
the sorts of things that Scripture communicates excite God. The, the progress of the Gospel. Is that a, a passion of mine? I think the sorts of questions we should be asking ourselves is, how are the things that communicate? How do the things that Scripture communicates as the priority of the God affect my own heart? Do I get excited about the things that God gets excited about? Right. And if if the answer to that question is yes, that should be for us assurance. That should be for us confirmation that God is at work in us. If He's not, the things that excite God will not excite us. And at the same time that I encourage you in all of this, I would say there's uh, another line from this text that I think is worth pursuing. And that is, uh, as much as we prove to be capable of deceiving ourselves, I would suggest that most of us are far more capable at being deceived than we are at deceiving. That is to say that... uh, None of us should walk away from this text without thinking about our own hearts. And at the same time, we should take this text as an absolute warning that there are people who falsely profess faith. And and when those people are revealed, it is, it can be devastating, difficult, like heart-wrenchingly difficult. But ultimately, it would be tragic uh, as much time is given in the New Testament to warning us that that happens, that somehow uh, it would shake our faith, right? That ultimately, uh, it is God's grace that those people are exposed. His grace to us, that uh, a measure of love to us, but also His grace to them. That, that they recognize that what they're pursuing, what they're staking everything on, isn't actually saving faith. That's why John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. That we should take stories like Simon's as warnings. That uh, ultimately, as much as we'll see the progress of the gospel, we will also see false fruit. And it should not disillusion us. And then, of course, I think as the text ends, uh, you know, with even with this curse on Simon, Peter still extends hope to him that if he will truly repent, uh, there can still be salvation for him. Right? This this text ends, I think, with the continued progress of the gospel, even as. Uh, Philip shows up in Samaria, and it seems like the evidence of Satan's work is everywhere. They're all essentially worshiping a man as if he were divine. And in short order, the church grows explosively in Samaria. To the point, have you noticed, that Luke isn't even recording numbers anymore. Right? Like, he started by telling us, well, the church was this big, and then it was this big, and, then it, and now it's growing and growing and growing that the gospel absolutely always advances, and there's no corner in which it cannot advance. It's advancing in the Samaritans with the apostles preaching, and there is still the potential for it to advance into Simon's own heart. There is no dark corner 
in which the gospel cannot go and that the people of God here are resolved to see it spread. And like that church, our resolve should always be to press the gospel into every dark corner of this world. That ultimately, uh, as is evidenced here, uh, and This should be our hope. Uh, we serve the God who always triumphs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, and we we see things daily that disillusion us, that frustrate us. Lord, uh, more violence this weekend and in, in, in Israel. And we see people in our culture uh, proudly worshiping Satan. And we see unchecked sin in our own lives, in our own community, and we see we see so many things that uh, frustrate us, God, and at times uh, we've even seen uh, people who we were convinced were believers walk away from the faith. And God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see as you see. God, that we would see the progress of the gospel in our own lives, that we would see uh, the progress of the gospel in dark corners of the world, God, that we would see, uh, God, that you are ultimately uh, triumphing in every way. God, that... Uh, your grace is transforming the hearts of others. And God, even as Satan does all that he can to oppose you, uh, God, that the gospel always progresses. And God, we pray that you would uh, give, us, uh, give us hearts that are strengthened by the progress of the gospel and never... Uh, overly disillusioned by Satan's opposition. And at the same time, God, we pray that you would give us hearts that long to be part of the progression of the gospel by your grace. God, indeed, we know that all we have is Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would cultivate in us an eagerness to share Christ with others. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen.